Well, shalom, everyone, and welcome to our program this morning. We are now in the midst of our program entitled the Spring Feast. It's actually, we're talking about the first four feasts going all the way from Passover to Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. They're connected together. And we've been covering for the last couple of programs much about Passover, historically what it's about, how Yeshua kept it, and how we observe it as a memorial commandment. We are now going to shift gears and talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And, of course, when we say unleavened bread, we are still talking about the bread we ate on the Passover, because on the Passover day we're commanded to eat unleavened bread at the Passover, including the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, um, I want to take you to the actual commandment that Moses gave with regard to keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Let me take you to Leviticus chapter 23, beginning at verse 5, and here's what it has to say. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at the twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Then on the 15th day of the same month, there is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation, you shall not do any laborious work. But for the seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord, and on the seventh day is a holy convocation, and you shall not do any laborious work. Here in Leviticus 23, that's basically what we're told about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now we learn a few more things about this feast and why we have the high Sabbaths on the 15th and the 21st. If you go to Exodus 12, verse 17, when Moses repeats about this, it says, because this is commemorating when we began to leave Egypt. And and on Exodus 34 and 18, it talks about when we receive salvation from Egypt, and that's the explanation of the second high Sabbath, the one on the seventh day of it, which is believed to be when we crossed the Red Sea and actually left Egypt. So we have this Feast of Unleavened Bread. It comes immediately after Passover, but it seems to speak more to the beginning of the Exodus of actually when the children of Israel received their freedom. And in fact, many Jews refer to this as the Feast of Freedom. This is when the firstborn were delivered on the Passover, but all Israel got the benefit of coming out of Egypt. And when we crossed the Red Sea at the end of those seven days, all of Israel had been saved. They had been delivered from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh at that time. That's the rationale that is behind why do we have a Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, one of the most fundamental questions that you have to ask is, what exactly is leaven? And what is it that God told us to abstain from? He didn't, t- he didn't give us a positive commandment, oh, I want you to eat unleavened bread. He said there shall be no leaven, and then that would be understood. Well, it's got to be unleavened bread then. So it's more of an explanation of not having leaven. And in fact, the other scriptures that I made reference to it will stress not so much eating the bread, but as have no with it and be a part of you and your home. And that's what opens the door for, oh my gosh, what is leaven? Are we just talking about bread? 
or are we talking about a whole series of food elements that have leavening elements to it? For example, yeast in bread specifically leavens bread. It leavens things and puffs them up and where you have a full loaf you know, before you bake. We know that the unleavened bread was the bread of haste. We know it represents the bread of salvation. They, they didn't have time for the bread to rise. They didn't have time to prepare a normal loaf of bread. So instead, they baked these unleavened bread cakes. Now, I got a box of traditional unleavened bread that you can get at the store. These particular ones are gluten-free, and they definitely are unleavened. And the reason why I say that is because gluten-free means there's absolutely no wheat in these. These particular matzahs are made out of potato flakes. And one of the things that we say about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, if you ever start keeping it, thank God for potatoes. Because you find yourself eating a lot of potatoes during the Feast of Unleavened to avoid wheat product. But let's go a step further. What if we take... A, any kind of grain or legume, for that matter, we dry it out and we mill it. And like oats or rice, have you heard of rice flour? You know, you can make a rice cake. And are we talking about leaven, meaning any of those items, or are we going to talk about wheat and, and wheat bread? Is that what we're talking about? Well, that's part of the question that comes in about this. And the scripture is not explicit in detail about this. Instead, it falls to the judgment and decision of leaders of the faith and to individual homes. I can tell you that from being in the Messianic movement as long as I've had, when, when I wasn't sure what this was all about, I was as strict as you could get about this. And I mean, we really did remove the leaven from the house for the whole period of time. And... Anything that could be turned into a flour, milled into a flour, and then be used in a bread, we got rid of it. We checked the labels of all different kinds of foods to see if they had any yeast in, you know, jars of things. Sometimes have yeast in them that goes part of the ingredient. And we would remove all of those. The biggie was when we got to legumes. And legumes are like beans and things like that. We would even remove those. We didn't, corn, you know, we removed all of that. And and then and because we were actually following the best counsel I could get, basically from rabbis in Judaism who'd been keeping the feast, and since we didn't know anybody else ahead, that that's what we were trying to learn. But as messianics, you know, we continued to do the research and say, okay, well, what did the Messiah do? I understand what my Jewish brethren are doing. That's their tradition, their custom. How how do we do it? Well, one of the things that learned right off the bat that there's not complete agreement within the Jewish community about this. For example, an Ashkenazic Jew, European Jews, well, they abstain from everything from that, but the Shephardic Jews, they don't have a problem with rice. They're okay on that. If you come down and you talk into a Hispanic community, they consider tortillas to be unleavened bread. Did you know that? And, you know, crackers, little soda crackers, look the same thing as matzah. And so the question is really, what is leaven? What, what are we going to do? Let me go ahead and answer very quickly for you. You have to make a decision. You're going to have to make a decision in your home. What are you going to call leaven? 
And once you agree that that's leaven, remove it. Don't participate in it before the Lord. We're keeping these commandments to the Lord. We're not keeping them for the, the benefit of other men. Let me remind you of that particular key point. We're doing something that we believe the Lord wants us to do. Now, what are we really supposed to be learning out of this thing? Okay, so we eat this stuff for seven days, okay? When you first start eating this, this is absolutely delightful, okay? I, I got to tell you, every, every year I get a piece of this, put a little butter on this, and I, man, I miss this stuff. But by the end of seven days, I'm done with this stuff. I can tell you right now, this gets old fast. One of the things that we say from a, and this is a, a piece of humor here for you, so forgive me. One of the things we say about the Feast of Unleavened Bread is there is no regular day during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because if you eat this stuff every day without enough fiber and water and so forth, it will plug you up. Now, I don't know how that's supposed to be fulfilling the vision of the bread of haste because if I get plugged up, I, it tends to slow me down. I don't know about you, but, but this is some of the iron that we have to face on this is to what is leaven. Well, if we go back and remember, let's talk about the historical part, particularly that dealt with Yeshua. We know that Yeshua ate unleavened bread with his disciples. We know he kept the feast. And since this was the feast that, that brought freedom to the children of Israel, we at the same time see that the Messiah's sacrifice brought freedom to us, freedom from sin, freedom from the captivity of sin and the penalty of sin. And that's really what the bread is trying to refer to. It's let's remove from us all of those things that are classified as leaven, things that are puffed up, things that are at odds with God's definition. And it's not so much about eating this particular piece of bread as much as what it means. And God gave this as a memorial commandment to teach us, to remind us. Remember Passover, you drink this cup, you eat this bread to remember of death, burial, and resurrection. It's a memorial commandment. Well, the unleavened bread is part of that memorial of what came out of Egypt, but it also carries an ongoing message with us about that we're supposed to remove leaven from our lives. One of the things that I have also discovered in the course of keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread is every year I have to have this discussion. I, once, I don't just make up my mind one time what is love. I have, to, I have to deal with this every year. I have to go through and think, now what is leaven? You know, you know, what are we, we going to call leaven? And I've discovered that it symbolizes every year what I have to do and go through in my assessing my own spiritual life. I'm not, I'm not the guy age-wise and health-wise, that I was back when I first started keeping these commandments. Leaven or sin to a 7-year-old is a lot different from a 21-year-old or a 35-year-old or a 50-year-old or a 70-year-old. The leaven is different depending on your station of life. So I think the reason why the Scripture doesn't so specifically say exactly what it is that's leaven 
it's the burden falls upon you and me to assess within our lives, our homes, what is leaven? And we have to ask that question every year. We have to answer it every year because the idea is we're supposed to be going forward and enjoying the freedom that God has given to us and no longer are we caught up in the leaven, the sin of the past. We're supposed to be free from that. So every year we have to evaluate what is leaven. In my life. And that, from that standpoint, this is a very good thing to do. I'm sure you've heard of the concept called spring cleaning. Well, this is in the springtime. And I think spiritually, every one of us, from a spiritual standpoint, need to do a little spring cleaning. We need to go and examine our lives and say, is there any leaven in there, anything contrary to the Lord? And let's get it out of here. Let's get it out of my life and let's get it get away from my home and from where I'm at. Now, I'm not going to go into and make suggestions to you as to what those things should be. You are smart enough and the Holy Spirit talks to you just as easily as he talks to me. And I'm certain that you're able to going to be able to answer the, that question from that. But that's essentially what we're doing. And we do that for seven days. Now, in the, in the New Testament, what you're going to find is that they like to combine Passover, the one day of that, and the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they just call it, in the, in the New Testament passage, Unleavened Bread. And the reason why they do it is because you eat Unleavened Bread on the Passover, and you eat Unleavened Bread during the Feast of Unleavened. So they just super summarize it and call it Unleavened Bread. Well, as a result of that, Judaism decided, and this is from the Pharisaic sect again, they decided that's, well, since it's all unleavened bread, let's just call Passover unleavened bread too, and let's call unleavened bread Passover. So if you go to a Hebrew calendar and you look for, well, where is the Feast of Unleavened Bread? You'll find it marked on the calendar, and it'll say Pesach. Pesach is Passover. Now, that Pesach will be for eight days. When does it start? On the 15th of Nisan. Wait a minute. Moses said Passover is on the 14th. Remember? But Judaism starts Passover on the 15th which is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because we're eating unleavened bread on the Passover. Okay? So they start there, and then they extend eight days. And if you look on a Hebrew calendar, it'll go all the way to the 22nd of Nisan. In fact, in Exodus 12 and Exodus 34, it'll specifically give the dates. It says there that it's from the 15th to the 21st. However, Judaism will take Passover on the 15th and from the 16th through the 22nd, they'll call Passover. Now, let's stop the whole discussion about what in the world is leaven. And let's go back to, are we really keeping this feast if we're following after Judaism's version of the timing? Well, I've got some serious questions about that, especially since the Messiah warned his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. The lesson of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is to get the leaven out. Why would he caution us about the leaven of the Pharisees? 
because they have something that they add to, take away from Moses, and it's added to, and it's not supposed to be there. Moses said it's not supposed to be there. Moses said, don't add to nor take away from what I have said. The Pharisees decided they're going to do it, and they think they have the right to do it. And modern-day Judaism today and every Hillel calendar, Hebrew calendar, you go look, and it says Passover's on the 15th, Feast of Unleavened Bread is all the way to the 22nd, and they call the whole thing Pesach, but they'll refer to it as unleavened bread. They just slur everything together and, and, and do that. As a Messianic believer, I have tried to go back and that this is what Moses instructed. This is what Yeshua did. He kept the Passover first, then he kept unleavened bread. And to, to substantiate that, even the New Testament testifies to you that the day that Yeshua was crucified, which was Passover day, that was a day of preparation. That's the reason why they had to bury him that day. It was a day of preparation for the next day was a high Sabbath not a weekly Sabbath, a high Sabbath, which means it was the 15th of Nisan. It was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Unleavened Bread has a high Sabbath on the first day, a high Sabbath on the seventh day. So it was indicating that he had eaten the Passover before the Pharisees do it. And that's the reason why the Pharisees were available to crucify him and, and condemn him the day before Passover for them, but it was in fact Passover. Oh, by the way, you know what the Torah says about death on Passover? It says if you're dealing with a death on Passover day, you are to abstain from keeping it. You're supposed to wait one month later because God does not want to mix death with the Passover. You know, the, the Passover is, is, is being passed from death to life, being passed over from death. So if you have a death associated with Passover, it's completely contrary to what is being said there. Those that condemned Yeshua mixed the death of the Messiah with the Passover. Direct violation of the law. But if they define that wasn't the Passover, that's how they try to escape that. They then use that same law to justify why he had to be crucified on that day, and they couldn't participate directly in it. They had to get Pilate to condemn it. They couldn't condemn him because they were going to take themselves out of the category of being clean for the Passover. The irony here is just incredible. For us... There's a couple of things I think that we should take note of when Yeshua says to us, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. I think that we should be aware of what the Pharisees do and teach. And I think that we should avoid those. The, the, the commandment is to remove leaven, to have nothing to do with the leaven. Yeshua told us those guys, what they're doing is leaven. So there shouldn't be any doubt on our part if we're going to keep the commandment, get that leaven away. Don't have to do with that leaven. I don't see this as a lot of rocket science here. This is pretty straightforward stuff. Yet, the vast majority of our brethren today, even my Messianic believing brethren, what do they do? They keep the tradition of the Pharisees. 
They don't have a testimony of doing exactly what Moses said. They're certainly not following the counsel that Yeshua said. I guess for them, those are all just words that go past them and they, they don't have any understanding. <clears throat> it seems to me that if we're serious about keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that we would take all of that into account and we would take very seriously the subject of what is spiritual leaven, not just some bread, what is spiritual leaven, and let's deal with that. All right. Now, I thought this was going to take me a little bit longer to do this teaching for you, but I'm going to accelerate things here to go into the next stage of this, our other spring feast, which is the Feast of, of First. Let me read to you the commandment of the Feast of First Fruits from Leviticus 23. It begins for us at verse 9. And it reads as follows. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I'm going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of the harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now on that day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male one-year lamb without defect or for a burnt offering of the Lord. It's a grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil and offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma with its libation, a fourth of a hen of wine. Until this same day, until you have brought in the offering of your God, you shall not eat either bread nor roasted grain nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all of your dwelling places." Did you notice there was a lot more verses explaining this feast than the previous two? Passover has one verse. Feast of Unleavened Bread has three verses. Feast of First Fruits, it's got a whole paragraph. Now, the interesting thing about the Feast of First Fruits, they didn't do that back in ancient Egypt when they were getting out. There was nothing happened historically. It was, this is a commandment for when the children of Israel complete the exodus and they go into the land and they're in the land of Israel, the promised land, this is what you will do in conjunction with the spring feast. I mention that because of all of these three feasts, this one particular feast, the Feast of First Fruits, has more confusion associated with it and is non-observed more than any of the others. And here's the irony. This is to be, there's not a fixed date on this. He did like, for example, in Passover, he said it's on the 14th. Feast of Unleavened Bread begins on the 15th, goes to the 21st. What does he say about the Feast of First Fruits? There's no fixed date. It's a variable date. What's, what, what do you mean it's a variable date? Well, you complete the Passover. And then you look for the next weekly Sabbath. That may fall on the high Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened, or it could fall somewhere during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It will definitely happen during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And on the day after that weekly Sabbath, you will then hold the Feast of First Fruits. Now, let me go ahead and tell you what the Pharisees have done with this. They don't do that. 
The Pharisees said, oh, the high Sabbath, that's Sabbath, so let's do it on the day after the Sabbath. So they say automatically the Feast of First Fruits is always on the 16th of Nisan. Now here's the irony of this whole thing. This date has to be set in a particular way. It has to be when it's observed on the first day after a weekly Sabbath. Here's the reason why. What follows from the Feast of First Fruits continues all to the way to the Feast of Weeks because using that First Fruits date, we're going to count seven Sabbaths, seven weekly Sabbaths. And on the end of those seven weekly Sabbaths, on the day after the seventh Sabbath, we're then going to have the Feast of Weeks. And for the most part, that's not, I can tell you right now, we're not talking about the month of Nisan. We're talking a couple of months later. We're talking about coming in late spring, early summer. The difference between the two is, remember it said to bring in the a harvest, wave the sheaves of the harvest. It's the harvest of the barley at the Feast of First Fruits. It's the harvest of the wheat that is at the Feast of Weeks. Here, we don't, we don't bake it, we don't mill it, we, don't, we bring the sheaves in. It's the, the grain is still in the head. We wave those before the Lord. In fact, he specifically says, you will not eat any of the new harvest in any way, shape, or form until those sheaves are waved before me. Now, if the harvest is starting to come in and we haven't done the Feast of First Fruits, you're not supposed to consume of the new harvest until those sheaves are waved. You're supposed to, for sure, thank God for the start of the harvest right off the bat before you eat of it. Good Christian tradition, we say the prayer before we eat. Can you imagine, you know, in a home, oh, you start eating before you've said the prayer. Well, that, that's the same kind of thing. He's saying, you are going to wave these barley sheaves before me before you eat any of that. But it extends then through that seven weeks that follow, which, by the way, we call the counting of the omer. And omer is a measure of grain. To we get to the 50th day, seven weeks, seven days, 49 days total, on the morrow after is the 50th day. Now that's the way Moses explained for it to be done. What do the Pharisees do? Well, like I said, they don't look for the weekly Sabbath. They just get past the day past the high Sabbath, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On the 16th, they declare it there, and then they just count 50 days. Now, they go through this baloney thing of counting the omer by saying, oh, and one week and two weeks. No, they're talking about seven-day segments. They're really, they're just counting 50 days is all they're doing. They're not counting seven weeks. So it defeats the whole purpose of why we have the Feast of Weeks. And that's the reason why the name Pentecost has become so popular. Because Pentecost simply means 50 and so they only count 50 instead of seven weeks, and then the morrow after the seventh week. Let me read a little bit further for you, and you'll see how this comes together. Continuing to read again in Leviticus 23 at verse 15, you shall also count for yourselves, are you ready for this? From the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. 
I mean, the word here is pretty explicit. We're talking about seven weekly Sabbaths. Again, this is not what the Pharisees do. This is not what Judaism does. This is what Moses instructed us to do. You should count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you should present a new grain offering to the Lord. And it goes on from there. Now, <clears throat> let me tell you historically how we used to keep this feast of first fruits. First of all, we've got to make sure it's springtime. Okay? We can't do this Nissan thing. And one of the things they used as the designator that we've come to the month of Nissan was that the priests had this field of barley. And they would plant it every year. It was designated as the barley that they were going to use in the temple service to set the time. And when they saw the barley coming forth in the sheaves and the head had filled out with the grain, that lunar month they said, okay, th this has got to be the month of Nisan. Because prior to the month of Nisan, the barley doesn't fill out with the grain. And it says specifically when you see the barley in, in the ear, you know, and that's a designation for farmers and agronomists about how, many, how the grain is in the head of the grain. In recent, the idea is then you gather up those sheaves, you collect some of them. Now, it may not be fully ripe yet, but, but, the, but the grain is in the head. You take, and, and a lot of times they were green. And you take those sheaves, you take big handfuls of those sheaves, they go into the temple, and they wave these sheaves before the Lord. They wave this, these sheaves of grain before the Lord. And so why are they doing that? I mean, you know, it said there to do it. What, what, what's all that mean? Well, there was a very traditional thing that used to be said about that, and that's part of the meaning behind it. You see, originally, <clears throat> that, those sheaves used to be a single grain. It got buried in the ground. It was watered. It came forth in newness of life, has a whole plant, and it has multiplied and become a whole head of grain from that one seed that had died. It died, it was transformed, it turned into a plant. So when they wave these barley sheaves, they are praising God and thanking him, are you ready, for the resurrection of life. These seeds died, but they come forth in newness of life. Guess what day Yeshua came out of the grave? It was the Feast of First Fruits. The testimony is going out to the disciples that the tomb is empty and that we think Yeshua has been raised. We have the testimony of the women who are saying, yes, we saw him. And in the temple that morning are the priests weighing, waving these barley sheaves thanking God for the resurrection of life. Do we get it? Do we, do we see how this holiday, the reason why it wasn't done in Egypt, it was done later in the land, is because back in Egypt, we didn't see the resurrection of the Messiah. We saw that after we came into the land. The resurrection work was done later by the Messiah. Very powerful picture for us. Okay, am I talking about Easter Sunday? Heck no. I'm not talking about rabbits and Easter eggs and all that other nonsense. It's the Feast of First Fruits. You might want to call it Resurrection Sunday, 
which is a substitute, and by the way, I might add a very cheap substitute for what is the Feast of First Fruits. If we would go back and let's say, let's not add to or take away from what Moses done. Let's stop listening to the traditions of men and the precepts of other men. Let's just focus in on what Moses gave us from the Lord. Let's just do that. We would see a whole lot more, and it would be far more meaningful to us. I believe that we should keep the Feast of First Fruits. I believe that we should be thanking God on that day, the first day after the weekly Sabbath, after the Passover, we say, thank you, Lord, that you bring things that are dead to life. Because I'm certainly looking forward to me being first fruits, you know, of the Lord. And oh, by the way, it goes back to you. Remember what they say about the Messiah? He's the first fruits of many brethren. Meaning, as a result of him, many of us will be resurrected as well. We will be first fruits in the kingdom. That is far more meaningful to me than let's do an Easter sunrise service. I, when, I, when I want to know the story about the death, burial, and resurrection, I eat the Passover. When I keep the Feast of First Fruits, I remember what the Messiah did that was prophesied by Moses and by these feasts. You see, it turns out these feasts are all telling us all about the Messiah. This one, this Feast of First Fruits, emphatically tells us about the Messiah. Now, what follows that feast is the counting of the Omer. We count now seven complete Sabbaths after we get that one straight, and we get to that... 50th day, we get to that day that's after the that's right after the seventh Sabbath, and we come together, and now, instead of waving sheaves, we wave two loaves. We have taken the grain, we have milled it, we have baked it, and we've made loaves, and we wave the loaves. We wave the whole product of what began. The first one is the newness of life coming forth, but then we get to the Feast of Weeks. Now we're talking about something that is a full product of real benefit to us. Now, traditionally, on the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, and by the way, Shavuot, it means weeks, but it's in the feminine gender. Ask yourself the question, why why would it be in the feminine gender? Because it's been given to the bride. God has given this to the bride. These are gifts that are given to us before the wedding. You know, like an engagement ring is a gift you give to her before you're married. And you, most good grooms, bridegrooms, they give other gifts before they get to the wedding. God has given us gifts, and one of those gifts are these holidays. Shavuot really illustrates that as gifts from the Lord for us. So we get to that, and it turns out that in the past, that was a historical event that took place in the ancient Exodus. That was the day when they were standing at the base of Mount Sinai and God spoke the Ten Commandments. That's a pretty significant day to take note of. It also turns out, historically for us, it was the same day that the gift of the Holy Spirit was given 
after the Messiah's resurrection and he left to go to be with the Father, the Holy Spirit was given on the Feast of Weeks. Pentecost, as they will say in the New Testament. And we know that there's a significant thing about that day that the Scripture goes to tell us, and that is that this day is referred to as the Day of Proclamation. Let me take you to verse 15. I want to read down for you. Actually, let me take, yeah. Let me read from verse 15, again, what it says. You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought in the sheaf, the way of offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring it into your dwelling places, two loaves of bread for wave offering made of two tenths of ephah. They shall be fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. Do you notice they use the term first fruits again? In other words, it started at the Feast of First Fruits. Now it's 50 days later. Now the product is still being referred to as the first fruits to the Lord. That's what connects the Feast of First Fruits to the Feast of Weeks. Along with the bread, you should present seven one year old male lambs without defect, a bull of the herd, two rams. They are burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering, their libations, and offering by fire to the soothing aroma to the Lord. Um, he goes on to say, You shall also offer one male goat for a sin offering, two male goats, lambs, one year old for a sacrifice of peace offerings. The priest shall then wave them with the bread at the first fruits for the wave offering with two lambs before the Lord. They are to be holy to the Lord for the priest. On this same day, you shall make a proclamation as well. You are to have a holy convocation. You should do no labor's work. It is a perpetual statute in all of your dwelling places throughout your generations. I want you to take note. It is a day of proclamation. That was what was designated. What was it when it first happened? It was when God proclaimed the Ten Commandments. What was it in the day of Pentecost? It was the day that they proclaimed Yeshua resurrected from the grave is the Messiah and is the Redeemer and the Savior. What is it to us? It's the day of our proclamation of faith. On, on, on Shavuot, it is my tradition, and I've done this many times and, and led others to do so, that's the day we go out and take the mikveh bath. That's the day we go get baptized. And what do we do? We make a proclamation of faith to the Lord. I, I go out there and do that as often as can. You see, I want as many witnesses as I can get. So when the Lord questions, well, have you ever chosen me before? Do I see the evidence? I need a whole bunch of witnesses saying, I heard him proclaim you, Lord. I heard him say out of his own mouth that he believed in you, trusted in you, he called you Lord. And that's the idea. We make that proclamation for it. What is in the future for this? Is there a prophetic element to what we're talking about here? The answer is very definitely. It comes down to this day, Shavuot, this, this first fruit business. You see, there's a day coming when the Messiah is going to come back and establish his kingdom. And guess what he's going to do in the first year of his kingdom? He's going to proclaim the kingdom. 
you can read the seven proclamations he's going to make there in Daniel chapter 9 at verse 24. He's going to proclaim the end of iniquity and sin. Transgression is no more. Righteousness is now established. He's going to proclaim the kingdom. We want this day of proclamation. We want to be a part of this day of proclamation. These spring feasts bring together not only explaining the history of what God started to do with all of Israel and his people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, about how he delivered us and it's going to deliver us. It also speaks to the fact that, that the Messiah kept these things and it was illustrated his redemptive work. It takes us all the way to explaining the history of the giving of the Torah, the giving of the Holy Spirit. And oh, by the way, there's one other element. All of this is telling us, and that's about the part about ushering in the kingdom. There is something happening here that will explain to us about the ushering in of the kingdom. You see, the prophets say there's going to be one more exodus in the future. And in fact, Jeremiah specifically says, the day is coming when we'll say the word exodus will not be referring to ancient Egypt. We'll be referring to when God, the Messiah, specifically brings us from all the nations of the world where we've been scattered. Oh, by the way, we are scattered into all nations. We're waiting for that exodus to come, which is going to bring us into the kingdom. And all of these elements that we've been talking about for Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, they're going to be in our future because we're going to have our own event called the Greater Exodus coming up at the end of the age. And we want to learn everything there is to know about the past so that we can understand the future. Because the fact of the matter is, in the Bible, history is prophecy, and prophecy is history. God is so smart that he can tell you the beginning, tell you the end while telling you the beginning. Most men can't do that, but God can. And if we're listening to him and paying attention, we will consider all these details as important that they apply to us. Brethren, I encourage you to keep the spring feasts. It's not just some stuff about history that is important to our faith. It is about your future. And that's the reason why I encourage you to do it, because it, it's part of your life as well. It's not just our ancestors. All right, this concludes our teaching about the, the spring feasts. I hope that you've enjoyed it. I will be doing a series a little bit later on in the year about the fall feasts, and we'll talk about Rosh Hashanah, trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles at that time. But for now, this brings us to a conclusion for this program. Again, if you like this program, subscribe to it, hit the like button, and this program will be made available for those of you who missed some of the episodes but would like to get your own set or share it with someone else of your friends. Shabbat shalom to all of you, and thank you for joining us in our program.